There was a story of a church that couldn't afford communion wafers somewhere in a very remote part of Australia. And so they got dispensation to serve sayos as communion wafers. But here's the bit I loved. They're a bit big, aren't they? Well, that's the thing. And they would crumb, and crumbs would fall on the floor. So the bishop went to the town to actually bless the vacuum cleaner that would then vacuum up the holy sayos. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to comedian, entertainer, radio and TV presenter and author, Mikey Robbins. And I'm not a bad tap dancer either. Oh, very good. And this is all about his first solo book, Seven Deadly Sins. And one very naughty fruit. Oh, and one very naughty fruit. Mikey Robbins, welcome. Mate, lovely to meet you. Thanks for being here. Now, Seven Deadly Sins is described as an irreverent romp through the history of food via the Seven Deadly Sins. For the benefit of those who've never been to confession, yes. what are the Seven Deadly Sins? And why does food play such an important part in them? That's a really good question. There's wrath, there's lust, there's envy, there's pride, there's greed, there's gluttony. And it's sort of weird that they were codified by the Catholic Church in the early medieval period. What we consider to be seven deadly sins or seven bits of bad behaviour in the Western world goes back to the ancient Greeks. In fact, there's some mention of it in Egyptian mythology, but it first gets codified by the Greeks, then the Romans, and then Pope Gregory finally sits down and puts down the list of what's naughty. Now, where does food come into it? Well, obviously, gluttony is, you know, that's the That's one. a given. That's a given. But then when you start breaking it down, and what it comes through, and I'll, I will, I'll give away what the naughty fruit is right now. Actually, I will hold my fruit till later on. But what happened was, as I started thinking about this book, and also started thinking about where I came from and my own relationship with food, I thought, yes, it does fit the sins. You know, gluttony is a, is a sin of consumption. Whereas greed is a sin of acquisition and holding. And, and I give the example of, of, of my sister, and this brings us back to Mass. Easter Sunday Mass, we'd wake up early, and the little tubby that I was, I would scoff all my eggs before Mass. And that was the sin of gluttony. You're probably a bit slow on the egg hunt too, I guess. Oh, I, you know, quite frankly, if it's worth hunting, someone else can have it. <laughs> I'll just sit there till I get my Humpty Dumpty. And those of my age will remember the Humpty Dumpty Easter egg. My sister would carefully unwrap the foil from her eggs, lick them in front of me, and then put them in the fridge. That was the sin of acquisition. <laughs> but unfortunately, as I explained to her, look, we're brother and sister anyway, and I would eat them. That's why I found one of the most important culinary um, lessons of my life. Easter egg chocolate and communion wafer is not a good combination. <laughs> no? No, no, not, not good at all, no. Do you want to explain uh, that? Well, or best left unexplained. Best left unexplained. For anyone who's a Catholic of my age, I don't, I don't know if this still exists, but my grandmother told me it was a sin to remove the communion wafer from the roof of your mouth with your finger <laughs> if it got stuck there. So you, so you say, <laughs> look around the church and say, oh, a bunch of kids are <laughs> I, I think the noise sort of says what we were doing. <laughs> Sounds a bit like a sayo. Yeah. Well, actually, here's one thing I didn't put in the book, which, because I couldn't quite find where to put it. There was a story of a church that couldn't afford communion wafers somewhere in a very remote part of Australia. And so they got dispensation 
to serve sayos as communion wafers. But here's the bit I loved. They're a bit big, aren't they? Well, that's the thing. And they would crumb, and crumbs would fall on the floor. So the bishop went to the town to actually bless the vacuum cleaner that would then vacuum up the holy sayos. <laughs> uh, which, was, which is when you say, why sin? We do correlate so much of our behaviour with sins, in, particularly in the Western world, particularly those of us with a Christian, Judeo-Christian background. And as such, food, because it's such an essential part of who we are, also then permeates also, also through our, our bad behaviour. What's your favourite sin, or your most often committed sin, uh, or your most recommended sin? Well, pride is the sin I would recommend. I think, and in fact, I write about that in the book. Um, gluttony is obviously my, my weak sin, and I'm 56 years of age, so I'm happy when lust comes to town. <laughs> For someone who claims not to be an historian, you do an excellent impression of one. Oh. Do you do impressions? Um, G'day, folks. This is Russell Crowe. Why did you choose an historical theme for your first solo book? I've always been a frustrated historian. Does, does, does it come across? Isn't that obvious, it mate? It does. My next question is, um, it's incredibly well researched, Seven Deadly Sins. Were you ever tempted into the rarefied world of academia? No. Uh, well, I, well, okay. It's confession time. Forgive me, Father. <laughs> I was actually, I came first in my year in high school in history, in three units, those of you are old enough to remember the units. And then when I went to uni, um, my mother, who had gone through, she got a teacher's degree, I was basically given the choice. I could do drama or history, and I did drama, which seems it's sort of fun to the past 30 years of my life. It's good, but I was, so I never got to be an hist historical academic. But I'm a glutton for history books. Like most middle-aged men, I actually have to force myself to read fiction. You're a... History buff from way back. Bit of a nerd. Um, my wife maintains, even, when, even if, I've, if I've got downtime, and I've explained it to her, if I don't watch the History Channel at least once a day, there's a chance Hitler might win the war. I've just got to keep an eye on him. You say you were once, and I quote here, huh. a fat Catholic. Do the two necessarily go together? What's well, funny. I, I do come from a large, on my mother's side, large Irish Catholic family. And chubbiness does run through the, the Mason gene, which is that side. And uh, there's a lot of us all fighting against our weight. And, um, and look, and my mother did this with the best will in the world, but probably in hindsight, sending a chubby 10-year-old to Weight Watchers was not a good idea. <laughs> so I've been... I it's have, still not a good idea. It's, you know what? And so I have struggled with weight my whole life. My sister says I, I depression eat, but um, I don't suffer from depression. Maybe it's because I eat. I don't know. I've never really figured it out. I do like food. I do like food. And to the point where, and I've, I've spoken about this before, about a decade ago, I found myself over 160 kilograms, which I actually had smaller comedians orbiting me. My <laughs> gravitational pull was that large. Given your self-confessed reputation for a good nosh-up, yep. is The Seven Deadly Sins some kind of penance for you? No. Look, uh, this idea has been bubbling away for years. And actually just getting it out was joyful. Mind you, though, this is, as, as, as you mentioned before, my first solo book. And it's over 80,000 words, so it took some time. And I never realised how lonely writing is. So just you and a just, pen? No, a, a computer. Actually, no, I do use a biro to make notes. Um, but me and a, and a computer. And, um, 
I suppose there was some sense of figuring out my own relationship with food, my attitudes towards it. It was not my intent in writing the book, but once once you're in there, you sort of go, and particularly when it came to gluttony, and also too when it came to pride, because I've always been one of those people that um, does associate eating out and eating different and nice things with a sense of self-esteem. Something I've, with maturity, I'm glad to say, I've gotten over. My biggest problem was, I talk about in the book, ordering the most extreme thing there. Like, you know, I've, you know I'd, I'd read Anthony Bourdain. I'd, I'd, I wanted to be that guy. So, which, which meant I had a lot of duck tongue and coxcombs and, and, and some bits of offal, which I, in hindsight, regret. Some, some of which I still love. I still love brains. And I still love um, the thymus gland. Oh, yeah. Sweet, sweet breads. Absolutely. The, the neck from the, the yeah. veal. Yes. Um, right? my, whereas my wife will not only not eat. It's very rich, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you have to remember, like from the French, but if they serve it, they, it's not rich enough. They're going to put some butter and some truffle and some foie gras <laughs> on that fella. Of course. Just, just sickly him up a bit. Now, on the topic of meat, yeah. swinging beef, cowboy caviar, dusted nuts, are all labels for a very unusual savoury dish. What are they? Have you ever eaten them? And if not, could you be tempted? Testicles. Testicles, testicles, testicles. There, I said it three times. Not just any kind of testicle. Well, actually, that's interesting. Um, it normally refers to uh, beef testicles, but uh, I, I love the fact that there is actually a testicle festival, which is my favourite phrase in the world right now. <laughs> In fact, if I was like a young man forming a rock band, I think Testicle Festival would be a great name for the band. But there are testicle festivals now, particularly in the States, where they they will try uh, pig testicles, they will try, um, uh, in fact, well, my favourite is they'll try rooster testicles, and it's actually advertised for those who like a lighter testicle. <laughs> yes, I, I, I have had testicles. Beef testicles, I had them quite a few years ago in a steakhouse in Las Vegas, which I suppose is, pre- is pretty much appropriate. Best and place to have them, I best suppose. Best place to have them, and they were fine. Well, I'll leave it at that. They were fine. I like, as I said, I like brains. They were similar in texture. Um, What's the most outrageous thing you've ever eaten? Or disgusting? Disgusting. Well, actually, ethically disgusting. Um, and this was by mistake. Many, many years ago, I was out with a chap from a record company. I won't mention the record company. And he was from South Africa. And we're having a few beers. And he said, would you like to try... Some biltong. Now, biltong wasn't particularly popular in Australia then. Still isn't, I don't think, is it? Oh, I don't mind a bit of biltong, but I'd never heard of it then. I said, oh, sure. And I, and I said, oh, yeah, it's that South African dried beef. And then he told me, actually, no, it's from an endangered antelope and it's illegal to eat it. At which point, I once, I didn't spit it out, but I, I, I passed on the next thing. So when I... When it comes to ethical eating, yes, I am a carnivore. Um, I also believe in eating, you know, from, from tail to snout eating. I, I believe if, you're gonna, if an animal's going to give its life, don't waste it. Ethically, there are some things I won't consume. I, the whole primates thing. But it does boil down to personal taste. Obviously, I won't eat whale, but, but it's, it's... Whale tastes bad anyway, really. Yeah, I've been told. I have been told. Um, but then again, that's one of the reasons why I actually... With this book, I specifically centred in on Western culture because we're comfortable with our own taboos. Now, when you start looking at other cultures' taboos, you can't, and particularly because this is meant to be a funny book, my, 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 my role was not to, to mock other cultures. So if another culture eats something that I find discomforting, 
I choose not to make a joke about it, and as such, it's not in the book. Which is a fair nothing to say. I I understand that some cultures eat dog. Um, I choose not to eat dog myself. I have been in a situation where I could have eaten dog, and I passed. That's a statement on my culture, my beliefs, my taboos. I would not make a statement on another culture's taboos when it comes to eating. That's about as clever as I get. Let's go back to the fart jokes. Well, I'm bringing that up later on. Ah, Don't worry. <laughs> you're bringing up flatulence. Well Absolutely. done. Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. Now, the book is not without uh, some very useful recipes. One of my favourites is from The Perfumed Garden <gasps> by Muhammad al-Nafzawi. Can we call him a scholar? A scholar. And Can uh, I read the, um, the, uh, the you, recipe? You're talking the 19th century translation by Sir Richard, yes, by Sir exactly, Richard Burton. Yes, exactly. please. And it reads like this. He who boils asparagus and then fries them in fat and then pours them on the yolk of eggs with pounded condiments, and eats every day of this dish, will grow strong for the coitus, and find it in it a stimulus for his amorous desires. Now, I tried that recipe a few weeks ago. How'd you go? Well, on the same night, I discovered the antidote, which is an episode of The Bachelor. Yes. Yes, you know, it's amazing. My wife had The Bachelor on. I actually had to chase my genitals back in from the backyard. <laughs> it's a terrifying show. But what a lovely dish. Absolutely. What a lovely dish. Which leads me to the next question. Is Seven Deadly Sins more at home in the cooking or the history department of the bookshop? You know what? That's that's for the grown-ups to sort out. I think in the history, there's not many recipes in there. There's, there's one for a bacon-based cocktail from Chicago. It actually goes on for several pages, and it is unbelievably... Wanky is the word I want to use, yeah. Um, but is that, that one where you stuff some eggs in a fish, oh, in a duck? That's the camel to duckin'. Yeah. yeah. That's in sloth because I sort of figured out that that's something that requires half a Bedouin tribe to prepare. And to eat. And to eat. Um, and th- there's a controversy with that one too. When I said I don't, you know, I don't talk about other cultures, there's two theories about the, the camel to duckin', which I, I stop the fact is first get a medium-sized camel. Because you don't want to be greedy, <laughs> they seem to think that it was it was predominantly it may have been a wedding feast thing. But then there's other people that believe it was actually created early in the 20th century to show off to the first waves of Western tourists. What a way to show off! What a way to show off, indeed. But I also mentioned you like my local butcher. Tadakans have become quite popular now. These days, you put a, you put a chook inside a duck inside a turkey, and. He was bemoaning the fact that, yes, it's lovely, but it's very, very time and cost ineffective. Now, food apparently functions not only as an aphrodisiac, Mm -hmm. but also as a contraceptive. Yes. Why haven't the church made this public? And are they as effective as the rhythm method? Well, let's face it, growing up Catholic, uh, if you want to know how good the rhythm method is as a contraceptive, watch a room full of Irish Catholics dance. (laughs) They're not on the beat. (laughs) <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. They're not on the beat. Poor rhythm. Poor rhythm. There are so, oh, there was there was a particular herb that the uh, the Romans and the Greeks actually ate to extinction because they thought it was a, uh, a contraceptive. There's uh, an ancient Egyptian one which starts with a, with a with a rather nice uh, potion for a woman to drink. Then she has to actually rub rather rough um, grain on her vagina. Uh, one thing you do find... Sounds very unpleasant. Sounds very unpleasant. And in fact, one of the things you, you do find as you go through the history of, of contraceptives in Western culture, it is once again the great uh, burden that it's always the woman's responsibility. Apart from fish skin condoms, which apparently were reusable, that's... I'm all for recycling, but... You know, now we're getting really disgusting. Really disgusting. But from, from you know, basically ancient Egypt right through to modern times... It's always been put on a woman. 
Which is, I suppose, does get back into sin and power play as well. The subtitle to Seven Deadly Sins, or is it a footnote, is One Very Naughty Fruit. Ah. But after reading this book, I came away with the impression that most, if not all, fruits were potentially naughty. What is this fruit and why have you singled it out in particular? It's the pineapple. Are you going to talk about the dirty pineapple? No. Um, read the book for the dirty pineapple. I don't think the dirty pineapple story is suitable for... I think, I think you're right. In fact, I, I, let's, look, I may be teasing here. I believe I actually start that little chapter by saying, I'm afraid there's no way of describing the dirty pineapple without describing the dirty <laughs> pineapple. So we'll leave it at that. Um, when, I, when I first came to the idea of the pineapple, a couple of years ago, I've, I've been thinking about this idea. I have quite a good food history library. I came across the fact that in 19th century, well, 18th century and 19th century England in particular, but most of Europe, it was cheaper to buy a Meissen porcelain pineapple, and Meissen being the most expensive of the porcelain factories in Europe from, from Germany, it was cheaper to buy a porcelain pineapple than a real pineapple. In fact, people would, would actually go to pineapple dealers, for want of a better word, and rent a pineapple for the night and place it in the middle of their dinner party. Sounds like something like, you know, rent-a-girl or rent a companion. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Swipe left to find the pineapple you like. <laughs> and um, it was obviously a, th- a thing of greed. It was a thing of pride. Um, there's a, a, a famous picture of Charles II being presented with a pineapple by his gardener. Uh, there's a, there's a, a story I tell about how in England, in Cornwall, they, they, they actually grow a pineapple as it would have been grown in the 19th century. And to achieve that, the pineapple sells for thousands of pounds. It's a constant battle of finding enough horse manure and horse urine. So you need both? You need both. It's about keeping the hot houses hot. Was Louis XIV or the 15th? My Louis can be interchangeable. Mine too. Yeah. Well, Louis XIV tried to ban the pineapple because the first one he was presented to, he didn't realise he had to peel the damn thing. <laughs> and he bit into it and said, this fruit's too dangerous. Then it was either later in his life or early in, his, in the 15th life, uh, one of the Louis had a courtesan who would perform a certain sexual act if she got a pineapple. He was so enamoured of her and this particular act, he built a hothouse in Versailles. Now, to actually create a tropical heat in Versailles in winter almost bankrupted the court. It was constant fires going on all day and all night. So, so it, it feeds into lust, it feeds into greed, it feeds into power... As I was writing the book, because it was originally called Seven Deadly Sins, which I thought was a little prosaic. And as I was going through the book, I kept thinking, oh, the pineapple pops up again. Oh, the pineapple pops up again. And so that's where the, the one very naughty fruit comes from. It does make quite a few appearances. It does indeed. It's, 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 it's the running fruit of the book. I've learned quite a lot from this book. Um, How to Kiss a Girl. That's bizarre, isn't it? That one. Uh, and that a Big Mac can actually be... Is restyled? Is, is that the way as a soup? Is that uh, what you do? That was a story. Is that the word? Yeah. Um, that was a story which came from, from myself. Have you tried it? No. I've, 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 <laughs> no. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. I've never hidden the fact that I had gastric banding surgery about a decade ago. Before I had it, I was researching it. And without getting too complicated, it, it basically restricts the flow of food. So anything particularly doughy like a Big Mac will not go through. And... What happened was there was a doctor in New York, in fact, an Australian doctor who was a pioneer in the field, to the point where he followed him one day, the doctor followed the patient, saw the patient going in and buying big bags of Maccas. As I said before, you can't eat a Big Mac with a gastric band. He he confronted, he raised it at the next session, and the patient admitted that, yes, he was taking the Big Macs home. 
He was blending them, then putting that in a microwave and drinking it as soup. And I use that as an example to show that gluttony is an addiction in, in some people. It certainly goes to extremes, well, doesn't it? In fact, yeah, if you have that need, that hole within yourself that can be filled with a particular style of food, you will do your darndest to replicate it. My namesake, Pope Gregory I, yeah, he, as he, you say. He, yeah, he, he cops a bit of a hiding. He does. Well, he's the one who wrote down the first laws of gluttony, yeah. a sin I'm certainly um, guilty of, uh, particularly with custard. You like custard? I love custard, and I've seen it put to various uses, but we don't oh, know about that. We'll get to splashing later if you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. Now, do you think he intended them as guidelines, or as they say these days, a code of practice? Well, see, that's one of the things that always amazes me when people talk about non-literal interpretations. You know, this wasn't meant literally. This was meant literally. When Gregory wrote down his um, his list of you know, what is a gluttonous act, he often gave biblical references, which to him was, was you know, let's underline the word sacrosanct. <laughs> so these were guidelines that had to be lived with, some of which are just common sense, like don't eat if you're not hungry, some of which are... Just pretty much, you know, don't eat with too much pleasure. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not giving that up. Don't covet your neighbour's ass. Yeah, well, well, and if your neighbour's serving ass, you should probably go home. <laughs> There's quite a few topics that uh, interest me through the book. Mm-hmm. Some great figures in history and some great events in history. Um, it, it, it's amazing you, how often Mark Anthony and Cleopatra turn up. They and Henry VIII, of course. Well, he's a legendary glutton, I suppose. Uh, uh, legendary. Mind you, he always maintained it was, it, it was due to the fact that he fell off his horse jousting. Or he fell off his wife, Justin. I'm not quite sure. It was one of the two. The great masticator, Horace ah, Fletcher. Horace Fletcher. Yes. And you know, it's a weird thing because I've actually, I'd actually heard this as a way of dining. The great masticator. And he actually got this from a British uh, prime minister. The idea that you had to chew everything within your mouth. 32 times? At least. At well, least. to the point where it flowed down like liquid. And with this, he lost a great deal of weight. Also, too, he was a wonderful self-promoter. He should have tried a Big Mac. Well, indeed, he'd probably still be going. Um, but he... Um, and what it, he's an example of one thing, which is there's always a theory about how to lose weight. And if if you promote it well, it can make you very wealthy. He was a struggling art dealer, ended up living in a pensione in Venice, became friends with some of the great minds of the time, Mark Twain, blah, blah, blah. But it's also the start, even though it's, it's like at the beginning of the 20th century, it's the start of the great manufactured, marketed dieting fads. And I do discuss quite a few of those in Gluttony. And it's a very interesting one. Yes, indeed. And one thing I will say, and I, I don't mean any disrespect to any of the large corporations out there that, that, that promote better living and better eating, but can you name me another industry that would be so profitable yet still had a 90% failure rate. Banking? Good point. Well said. I, I, I stand corrected, good sire. <laughs> yes, indeed. But uh, yeah, the, the, the great masticator, a genius at self-promotion. Now, gout is a catalyst for great events in history. It's bizarre. Um, if you look at... I'm, I'm fortunate I've never had gout. Uh, one of my best mates suffers from it. Badly. I sometimes imagine I've got gout, but no, it's not you, true. If you know, if you have gout, you 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 know you've got. I hear gout. it's painful. It's all I've, I've I've actually been at lunch with him. He doesn't drink anymore, but he'll order some seafood, and halfway through the seafood, he'll, he'll just get this look on his eye, like I really shouldn't be having this, whether that's psychological or not. Yes, but um, going back, but 
particularly in the 18th century, gout was very prominent amongst uh, men of a certain status. To the point where several of the great figures of the American Revolution all suffered from gout. It's how, it's how Jefferson bonded with Franklin. It's how, um, in fact, Pitt, who was uh, the Prime Minister, was absent twice from Parliament. Uh, one, when uh, some, some vexing laws were put on, on America, but most importantly, the second time when he was uh, away from Parliament, the tea tax went through, and we all know how that ended up. Um, also, too, uh, the great French financier of the Revolutionary War uh, suffered from gout. Yeah, so it's, it's this weird connection of status, wrath. In fact, it sort of involves several sins of how men of a certain age, of a certain era, had gout in common and how it had repercussions from this very specific little painful, or very painful thing in their foot to the modern world we have today. Makes me wonder whether Trump and Putin share this affliction. I think they share many afflictions. And let's just pray gout gets them one day. <laughs> well, all you can say is uh, truth really is stranger than fiction. Uh, oh, please. <laughs> yeah, we could, be here for, we could be here for many hours. I'm three quarters of the way through reading um, Fear by Bob Woodward. And I recommend it for everyone who can't quite articulate that gnawing fear that wakes them in the middle of the night. He does that very well. You make reference to a huge list of books throughout Seven Deadly Sins that you've consulted. And yes. it reads a bit like a catalogue of ancient texts from the Bodleian Library. Now, is this just casual bedside reading for you or something you read in particular for this project? Oh, I would say half of these books I had before this project started, probably a bit more. You had them in your library? I had them in my library. I've, as I said, this to me, this, the, the, the social history of food and food preparation has always been a really fascinating... I, I found it a fascinating subject, and I hope you do too. But I, I just... I, I really do... To me, it's, it's one of those things where the personal interlaps with the global. Now, you've even gone to the trouble of giving us a recommended reading list. I have indeed, yes. yes um, it's quite comprehensive. It is quite comprehensive. Um, some food historians will say I have not mentioned Brillat Savonon. And the reason why I haven't mentioned... The mother load of all food writers. It's too painful to read? It's If I was to start quoting Savonon, it'd be all the book. In fact, once you read my book, go out and read The Pleasures of the, ta- the Table. <laughs> Written in 1825, every person who loves food and history should read it after they've read my book. <laughs> of course. Of course. But, but, but I, I do find these, the, a lot of these books are absolutely fascinating. And um, if, I, if I could give a few recommendations. Yes, I was just about to ask. Um, uh, Ray, uh, Ray Tanner Hill's book, um, Margaret Visser. Both her books, Much Depends on Dinner and The Rituals of the Table, are fantastic starting points. Um, and Michael Pollan, who I think a lot of people might be aware with, an American writer, uh, his book, Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation, which I think is a wonderful title. It's a great book. And, and also, too, he, he writes like a banshee. The chapter on sloth. Yes. That singles out some of the most unnecessary labour-saving devices ever invented. What's wrong with the electric knife? What's wrong with the microwave? And the moist towelette? Well, actually, the moist towel that probably saved generations of people of getting sick has got rid of finger bowls, which was a great spreader of disease right up until the start of the 20th century. I, th- I think I first encountered it with, uh, well, I don't want to admit this. KFC. Kentucky Fried Chicken. In fact, I, I, I wrote the book, KFC was the first early adapter of, of, um, of moist towelettes. In fact, when I was a kid, going to KFC was a treat. 
Taking home the, uh, a handful of moist towelettes was an even bit. For some reason, it was like I felt I was living in the future. In 1973, Newcastle, if I had a packet of moist towelettes. I thought it was some kind of sauce. Well, well, let's face it. Well, let's not go there. Um, yeah, and, and the, uh, the microwave, it's a personal thing. I can't use them. I had dinner at a. I was lucky enough to have, through a mutual friend to have, have dinner at a very good chef's place the other night. And uh, he had a microwave. For, they for, are useful. For warming up the plates. Ah. But I, I said, do you use it for other things? He said, he has vegetables in them, he has potatoes in them. Um, I've, every time I've tried to use a microwave, it just comes out looking like drowned roadkill, which is a bizarre combination. Um, but, Difficult to achieve. And, and the, the, the electric knife, yeah, my, my father had an electric knife. My father-in-law had an electric knife. I just find a good sharp knife is so much easier to use. But yeah. should we talk about the dishwasher? If, 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 oh, if you want, well, to talk... the dishwasher is. But you know that's actually really useful. Oh, tell me, look, I, you know, when I was a, a younger struggling comedian, I I worked at uh, two of Sydney's best restaurants as a dishwasher. The um, in fact, one's still going, the Centennial Park Cafe, and a restaurant called the Burdekin. I think it had two hats, which was a big thing in those days, or well, still is. And um, yeah, the dishwashing that was. Hardest, I mean, it's a horrible job. It's a horrible, and and also too, it was the eighties. So chefs were, they were basically pirates, and they had knives, and they had hot pans, and you are the you are the lowest totem, of the pecking order. And I'm not saying I'm immature enough that once I got a little bit of fame and a little bit of money, I went back to both those restaurants. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> Let it out. Yes, I. my first big paycheck in show business, I went back to that restaurant and I ordered the best French wine I could and made sure the kitchen knew I was there. I am a deeply shallow man. <laughs> this interview wouldn't be complete without a few fart jokes. Ah, oh, cool. And you dedicate not one, but two sections to the topic. Yes. I particularly like part two. Ah, oh, yes. Would you... Take the trouble to explain to the listeners the virtues and vices of baking an air biscuit. I've never heard that, baking an air biscuit. Oh, it's, mate, it's I've a got beautiful one. phrase. I've got a million of them. Are you referring to the 1772 pamphlet, which a lot of people have put down to the great author Jonathan Swift? Now, when we were kids, we read Gulliver's Travels. Well, a particular version. Uh, yeah. Then maybe later at uni we, we read the original Gulliver's Travels. And by that stage you realise that Jonathan Swift, apart from being a great writer and a satirist, loved a good fart joke. So can I read from this um, 1772 pamphlet that appeared on the streets of London? Please do. I won't put in any sound effects. <laughs> the benefits of farting explained, or the fundamental all, cause of the distempers incident to the fair sex, inquired into... Proving a posterior, most of the disorders entailed upon them are owing to flatulencies not seasonably vented. It was written in Spanish by Don Fartinodo Puffindors, Professor of Bombast at the University of Krakow, and translated <laughs> into English at the request and for the use of the Lady Damfart of her fartshire, by Obadiah Fizzle, Groom of the Stool, to Princess Arismany of Sardinia, printed by Simon Bombarded at the Sign of the Wind. He then goes on to say, which is interesting, Swift talks about how women should not refrain from farting. It's unhealthy, it's, it's unhealthy. Well, he maintains that it doesn't um, breach any canon law or natural law. It may be on the edge of civil law, but not really. And he also argues that women suffer from denying themselves food and drink that may cause flatulence. In that case, it was mostly bottled cider and peas porridge. I go on to say that when I was a kid, it was um, fruitcake and GI cordial. 
for some reason, my mother, and it was always Christmas time, don't give him another piece of fruitcake, he'll fart in the car on the way home. Thank you, Mum. Let me, let me just give you, by Fartonado Puffendors, this glorious description of letting Fluffy off the chain. A nitro-arterial vapour exhaled from an adjacent pond of stagnant water of a saline nature and rarefied and sublimed into the nose of a microcosmical alembic. By the gentle heat of a stereosaurus balneum with a strong empyuma and forced through the posterior by a compressive power of the explosive faculty. As I say, this is quite simply the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band of fart jokes. Absolutely. True alchemy there. I'd True say. alchemy. To me, this, this is not that I'm comparing myself, obviously. The great tradition of what we regard as Western wit, that wonderful mixture of the profane and the profound. In my own little humble way, I'd like to think that my fart jokes and tied up with a bit of history put me in the same tradition as Jonathan Swift and John Donne, but no. There is that thing, you know, that in Western culture we like the profane, we like the profound, and the strange mid-world that they can occupy together. I think you've certainly made a wonderful contribution to the tradition. Oh, thank you so much. We're going to get serious now. Okay. If you were to have a dish named after you, ah. what would be your preferred ingredients and what name would you give it? Well, there is actually a cocktail named after me. It's called the Christmas Mikey. And this came from quite a few years ago. My wife, it was, it was near Christmas time, bizarrely enough. My wife and her girlfriends had been out for lunch. And it was a lovely, lovely summer's day, and obviously been near Christmas. And they came home with some wine, and they went, but one of them said, I really, I really feel like a, a fruity cocktail. What have you got? And I sort of looked around, and I looked in the freezer. Mother is the necessity of invention. It's not a naughty fruit, is it? No, it's not. It is. I, well, partially. I found some ice. There was some vodka, which we kept in the freezer, and half a packet of pine lime splices. <laughs> so I took, I got a butter knife. I scraped the pine lime splices off the sticks, put them in a blender with the ice and the vodka, and made the Christmas Mikey. And it's a lovely, refreshing summer drink. I've always wanted a sandwich named after myself. And this is a weird sandwich. I wish I, I, wish I could say I invented it. It was actually from a deli in Newcastle in the 1980s. And this does not sound like a good combination, but trust me. You get some good rare roast beef. In fact, if I make it at home, I buy a steak and cook it to medium rare. You thinly slice that, put that on a roll with tabbouleh and bernay sauce. And a bit too much pepper. Mm -hmm. It sounds odd. It sounds like a, like tabbouleh and bernays. It Perfectly is, lubricated, some would say. You know what? I think that will, that will be on my epitaph, on my gravestone. Mikey Robbins, he died perfectly lubricated. <laughs> um, it's a great, it's, it's a great combination. And so, if anyone, if any shop owners out there want to open it, want to create a new sandwich, just call it the Mikey. Is it a perfect accompaniment to the Christmas Mikey? Oh, that's a bit fruity. I'd probably go, hey, yeah, what the <laughs> hell? You know, see, that's the beauty of the Christmas Mikey. By the time you've had two, you'll, you'll drink it with anything. I'd like to finish with a very proper quote from the chapter on envy by mm -hmm. one Dr. Kniffer. Here we go. It becomes clear that people think the practice of eating together might have functional significance beyond concurrent consumption of calories. Now, it sounds like a topic for a celebrity debate. Which side would you take? It's a really interesting one because it then goes on to describe um, relationships and what the study is about is dealing with exes. And, you know, if you, if you have an ex-partner, what sort of meal or coffee or drink would your partner be comfortable with? 
But also, too, I think it goes beyond that. Um, I remember studying sociology at university. There are people you go to a barbecue with. There are people you go to a large catered indoor party with. Then there are people you would have over for drinks. Then there are people you have for dinner. As such, we often define our closeness to other people on how much bread we break with them and in what, in what situation. Uh, another example, too, uh, I, I talk about candles. And when you think about our most primal relationship with food, particularly once we started to cook food, is sitting around a fire. So as you look at the person across the fire, the person you're sharing food with and the other people around you, those people are us. Everyone else outside in the darkness is them. So there are actually socially codifying things about who we eat with and what situation we choose to eat with them. Let's just say there are various degrees of closeness we have with, with our fellow humans and the way we, we share our food with them defines that closeness. Mikey Robbins, thanks for chatting with us today. That's an absolute pleasure, mate. I'm going to go write another book so we can do it again. <laughs> Seven Deadly Sins and One Very Naughty Fruit by Mikey Robbins is published by Simon & Schuster and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookshops. My name is Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.